replied, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Well, four short talks during our service this afternoon and also some time for our own thoughts and uh, perhaps rereading of the passages. I want to give a, a flavour of John's account of this first Good Friday. And John was necessarily selective in what he has recorded for us, as all the Gospel writers are. Uh, but all these uh, uh, selections, if you like, that John has made are selections with a purpose. And I, so I want to explore some of these uh, main threads running through John's account this afternoon. The immediate context, of course, is actually the, the first part of John chapter 18, where it's clear that Jesus is intent on going through with this crucifixion on behalf of his people as a substitute, as our substitute. And then in these verses 28 to 40, there are three main players on the stage. There's Jesus, there are the Jewish people of Jesus' day, and there's Pilate. But the focus is mainly on Jesus and the Jewish people. 
first the Jews, the, the quietly but guilt, guiltily religious. You can be desperately religious and at the same time desperately guilty. The Jews were. It's Friday morning. And we see in verse 28 there, the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. And uh, by now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. They were simply more concerned for their religion and their ceremonial cleanness than they were for the justice of whether or not Jesus should be crucified. Their religion was more important than their Lord. And for those of us who come to church on Good Friday, isn't that just a a gentle but a rather important question for us? Is our religion more important to us than our Lord? Well, for the Jews here of Jesus' day, Uh, They're so desperate to eat the Passover, they're entirely missing the really profound meaning here. That what Jesus is about to do would make their Passover redundant. The Jews are so keen to eat this earthly Passover, they're actually giving up the opportunity to eat the heavenly one. Because as we shall see, Jesus is the Passover lamb to end all Passover lambs. As once for all, he will shed his blood for the sin and the guilt of his people. So we have the guilty religious, whose religion is more important than their Lord's. Extraordinary, isn't it? But we also have here the innocent king. Now, three times... Pilate declares that Jesus is innocent. Uh, We saw it in verse 38 there. I find no basis for a charge against him, Pilate says. But also, as we go on into chapter 19, we'll see that again in verses 4 and 6 there. So three times Pilate declares Jesus innocent, and three times the Jews of Jesus' day demand that Jesus should die anyway. And as we know in the Bible, if something is said three times, it means this really is the case. It's like putting it in bold and italics and underlining it and increasing the font size to 18 or something like that. He's saying here, the Jews are entirely guilty. And Jesus is entirely innocent. An innocent king. It's here, and as the account continues, it is just abundantly clear that Jesus is the innocent king. And Pilate himself has obviously picked up on the idea because the Jews won't answer his question in verse 29. They simply uh, reply in verse 30 with something which isn't answering the question. If you were a criminal, they replied, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Talk about evasive. And you know if someone won't answer your question, then you know they've got something to hide. And Pilate goes back in and uh, it's a question of Jesus being the king is on his mind, isn't it? So he says, look at verse 33, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus doesn't say so specifically, but it is abundantly clear here that that is precisely what Jesus is. 
And then he talks about my kingdom. Look at verse 36. Twice he's talking about my kingdom. And he's saying that I am the king of the Jews, yes, but not just the Jews, but of everyone. And a king has a kingdom. And Jesus' kingdom is not a materialistic, not an earthly kingdom, but as you look in verse 36, a heavenly kingdom. And he's about to die so that people may enter it, so that their guilt can be atoned for, paid for, so they will be free to live under the lordship of this King Jesus. Jesus the King, the eternal King, yet he can still die. He will die for his people. And how do we find out about and enter this kingdom? Well, it is simply all about truth, as Jesus goes on to talk about in verse 37. And the main way that Jesus attracts people to his kingdom is through testifying to this truth. The truth that Jesus tells us about God in eternity through his words and through his actions. And so if we want to know more about Jesus and more about his kingdom, then the way to do that is to listen to him and his words. So we have Jesus, the innocent truth. And it's ironic, isn't it, that Pilate thinks that he, that Pilate, uh, is the objective judge. But in reality here, he is being judged by the innocent truth, by the innocent king. We see the guilty religious and the innocent king. Let's be quiet for a few minutes. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. 
Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, Take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. You might think this is getting out of control. We have an increasingly scared Roman governor uh, wriggling in the face of not just the guilty religious, but now the evil religious leaders. Look at verse 6 here. Uh, As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, this is coming out of the governor's palace, and they shouted, this is the religious leaders, crucify, crucify. And then look at verse 7, and again in verse 12, and verse 15 there, they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. And we see the innocent king rejected. A very weak attempt to protect him by Pilate. But the focus here is really, I think, on the Jewish religious leaders. And we have the innocent king rejected, despised and rejected. The innocent, perfect, once for all, Passover lamb, despised and rejected. You can see the Jewish clear intentions here. There's a deliberate rejection of Jesus' rule. They don't want to be part of Jesus' kingdom. They're not on the side of truth. They want their deeply flawed and in the end useless religion instead. And then there's the deliberate choice of someone instead of Jesus who they know to be guilty. Barabbas. It is extraordinarily perverse. And in the end, there is uh, no interest in justice. 
and they will sacrifice all logic to get Jesus killed. In fact, actually, it's worse than that. There's a great irony. You look at verses 12 to 15 here. There's a great irony in the Jews' situation because they embrace Rome in order to get rid of their rightful king. They're willing to embrace the occupying Roman forces and their powers, forces and powers that actually they deeply resent in order to kill their innocent king. Isn't that astonishing? Sometimes you just shake your head in despair at the perverseness and the depravity of the human heart. And yet that is our heart too. The truth of the matter is that actually we're no different. We like to think we're better than that, but if we're honest, we know that we have the potential to be just the same, perhaps worse. Our name is Legion. But today is Good Friday. Today we stare at the depths of human depravity and we gaze in wonder and astonishment at this innocent king of truth who died for us. And that makes today Good Friday. Very Good Friday. Wonderfully Good Friday. innocent king rejected for us let's be quiet so the soldiers took charge of Jesus carrying his own cross to the place of the skull which in Aramaic is called Golgotha There they crucified him, and with two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I've written, I've written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. 
So, this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, Here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his own house. This is part of uh, uh, an extract from the first Easter by Peter Marshall. And so the crowd came to Golgotha, a hill shaped like a skull outside the city gates, where two great highways, the Samaria-Jerusalem Road and the Joppa-Jerusalem Road, converged on the city. Only as the nails were driven in did the shouting stop. There was a hush. Most of them were stunned, horrified. Even the hardest of them were silenced. Mary, the mother of Jesus, closed her eyes and stopped her ears. She could not bear the thud of the hammer. Simon of Cyrene, from time to time, wiped away his tears with the back of his hand. Peter stood on the fringe of the crowd, blinded by hot tears that filled his eyes while his very heart broke. A group of soldiers took hold of the crossbeam and lifted it slowly off the ground. With each movement, the nails tore at the shredded flesh and the wrists of the Nazarene. The cross swayed in the air for a moment and then with a thud dropped into the hole prepared for it. When the first spasm of pain had waned, Jesus opened his eyes. Over the heads of the crowd, he could see the city tawny yellow like a crouching tiger in the midday sun. Nearer, there was a hillside carpeted with an enemy and cyclamen. For just a moment, a gentle spring wind blowing across the face of the suffering man blew away the smell of blood and wafted to him the fragrance of flowers. And he saw a single lark circling high above the hillside. But closer still, a mad medley of fury surged below him. There were eyes watching this man on his cross, unbelieving eyes, eyes with gloating in them, other eyes that looked and never saw. Faces were looking up at him, convulsed faces, snarling, invective faces, faces that through his pain-glazed eyes seemed to melt and run together. Fingers pointed up to him, hanging quivering on the cross gibbet. Long, bony fingers, mocking, accusing fingers, fingers of scorn and ridicule. And there was God's king, dying on a cross. It's so incongruous, it's so unlikely, it's so far removed from human understanding. How can God's king allow himself to die a cursed death? 
And yet, we shouldn't read this with a sense of failure and tragedy, but rather read it in awe and with a sense of triumph. This is actually, in its weakness, a wonderful story and a wonderful victory. The king dies, and yet it is great news. The king dies for the fulfillment of the sovereign plans of God. And if we cast our eyes here over, say, verses 23 to 27, it was the custom, for instance, for the soldiers to keep the clothes of the crucified. Psalm 22 includes an execution scene, and it includes, too, God's promise to vindicate his suffering afflicted one. And we can clearly see here that undergarment, untorn, as they cast the lots for that last piece of Jesus' clothing. And we see it is a fulfillment of Psalm 22 and verse 18. God's in charge here. God's orchestrating even the fine details of Jesus' last moments. This is not a runaway train. This is not some kind of appalling disaster. Even this is planned and prepared by God our Father, the King dying in the fulfillment of the sovereign plans of God. And the king is dying for his people whom he loves. Look at verses 25 to 28 there, or 25 to 27. It's a lovely moment, a lovely moment. A woman, uh, as he refers to uh, his mum, is not a sign of disrespect. And we're not sure exactly why John decided to include this here. Maybe to show that Jesus returned to heaven with no human earthly obligation left unfulfilled. Maybe partly to tell us that actually I was there. John is referring to himself when he talks about the one whom Jesus loved. In verse 26 there. At the very least, we can see Jesus' heart, his love, his care his concern, his compassion. He dies loving. He dies loving his mother. He dies loving John, who's recorded this for us. And actually he dies loving you and loving me as the king dies for the people he loves. Neil Brunner wrote this, In the cross of Christ, God says to man, that is where you ought to be. Jesus, my son, hangs there in your stead. His tragedy is the tragedy of your life. You are the rebel who should be hanged on the gallows. But lo, I suffer instead of you and because of you, because I love you in spite of what you are. And the king died for the world. The king died for the world. This notice, verses 19 to 21, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Pilate taunts the Jews, but it's ironic too, because 
He is. He is the king of the Jews. And more than that, in, t- in putting this notice there and putting it in these three languages, Aramaic, Latin and Greek, Pilate is proclaiming this to the world. It's a public proclamation that Jesus is king. That the king is dying for the world. God's innocent king. He dies for the fulfillment of the sovereign plans of God. He dies for the people he loves. He dies for the world. Let's be quiet. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. And because the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw this has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. It's nearing the end now. Won't be long. But there's more scripture to be fulfilled both before and after Jesus dies. He says in verse 28, I am thirsty possibly from Psalm 22, verse 15. And then in verse 30, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Bruce Milne has written this. Thus, Jesus dies. 
he who was from all eternity dies. The eternal word through whom all things were made, including life itself, dies. He who raised the dead, who at the tomb of Lazarus plundered its dread abode, himself dies. Jesus' death, the climax to which the whole Old Testament, all of God's revelation, all of God's activity on earth had been moving from, actually from the day the universe was created... And this is the key event in God's plan. This is the center of history. This is the focus of our salvation. And Jesus says here in verse 30, it is finished. In fact, if you look at verse 28, the words there, finished and fulfilled, and the word finished in verse 30 are slightly different words, but they come from the same root, which means accomplished. And what a strange way to talk about the king's death. Accomplished. Jesus' death was accomplished. Or it could be translated paid in full, like a a stamp you sometimes get when you've paid an invoice. This is not Jesus saying, oh, I'm finished. This isn't Jesus saying, oh, I've had it. This isn't Jesus saying, well, my life is now finished. This is not something negative. It's not a defeat. It's not the crushing end of hope. But this is a glorious victory over death and over hell and over sin and over the grave. I came across uh, this uh, verse in a poem this week. I think I'll read it twice. It bears some thinking about it. Just four lines. He hell in hell laid low. Made sin, he sin o'erthrew. Bowed to the grave, destroyed it so, and death by dying slew. He hell in hell laid low. Made sin, he sin o'erthrew. Bowed to the grave, destroyed it so, and death by dying slew. And so Jesus died, the dying of God himself, as Stephen Neal put it. And the Romans would normally leave bodies on the crosses to be eaten by the vultures, But the Jews would quote Deuteronomy 21 in verse 22 and they don't want the executed bodies left there over this special Sabbath, as verse 31 puts it. Uh, There's this big festival coming up and uh, they would have used an iron mallet to break the legs so if you're still alive you can't push yourself up so well and you end up suffocating quickly and uh, the death, your death would come soon. But Jesus had gone already. The perfect Passover lamb. Actually, in Exodus 12 and Numbers 9, the Passover lamb isn't allowed to have any bones broken. 
So the fact they didn't break Jesus' legs here is again fulfillment. Again, it's saying Jesus was the perfect Passover lamb given by God, sacrificed for our sin. And then they shoved a spear in his side just to make sure. And out flowed, as it says here, blood and water. The medics debate the detail, but they agree that Jesus had died. His heart had stopped. His body was cooling. And he was still. The stillness of death. Why do we meet today? What would Jesus want us to do? What would John want us to do? John who wrote this. Well, he tells us, verse 35, the man who saw it, that's John, has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. In other words, you as well as me, John is saying, may believe. He was there. He's telling us the truth. And he wants us to believe just as he does.